Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. Oh my goodness. This was a fun weekend for us. I have not been that blitzed in the glory in a while as I was last night. I'm not sure what exactly happened there. My recollection of last night's everything is really foggy. You know, a Holy Spirit hangover is very different from the worldly nonsense. You wake up rested with perfect clarity, mind renewed instead of headache, you know? It's not that That's kind of how I woke up this morning. I thought, man, that was great. I could not remember a thing I preached last night. It's recorded. Good, good. I'm going to have to go back and listen to it and take notes. Tracy's like, you said a lot of new stuff last night. Can I give you some insider information on how this whole kingdom preaching thing works? How many of you feel called to preach the gospel? Wow. Put your hands up again. Way up. All right. You know you're called to preach the gospel, right? Good deal. A few years ago, I felt like the Lord said, you've just been talking about stuff you know. Why don't you talk about things you don't know? In other words, preach beyond your understanding. I have no idea how to do that. Like, what does that even mean? So the first thing you do is change the way you study. You've always studied to teach. Stop studying to teach and study to learn instead. And I realized if you study to learn, then you're always a student in heart and mind. And when you study to learn, you fill up your storehouse of knowledge and revelation. You never fail to have something to teach. But oftentimes the revelation won't come to you until you begin to unpackage the things that you've studied to learn. So I'd be in the middle of preaching and suddenly revelation would come and I'd be thinking, you know, you could have dropped this on my heart during the 20 hours this week that I spent studying this. But no, no, you wait until I get up and actually am faithful. You know what I'm talking about, John? You had that happen? It's unbelievable. It's like you're in the middle of preaching and you see something new that you never saw, even though you've been studying it the whole time and you have to work really hard to try to make it look like you know what you're talking about. And that's, that's kind of the way it was. And then about, about eight or nine years ago, something really interesting began to happen. And that is I would hear questions in the room. It's like I could hear the questions on people's heart and mind. Maybe about something I was talking about. Maybe something I said triggered a question. I didn't hear it with my physical ears, but I could hear it here. It's like I knew in my knower the question that somebody was asking in the room because it would suddenly come to me in the middle of teaching, which is very inconvenient, by the way. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, a funny thing would happen. I would suddenly get an answer to the question. The question would be a question I didn't know the answer to, but suddenly I would have an answer to the question. And I got to the point where now I can actually tell where the questions are coming from in the room, generally speaking. And, and so the past couple of days around here have, I know it looks like maybe I got up and preached some prepared message. I have no notes. Uh, this has been like a big giant Q&A session, really. And, uh, and so I pray that you had questions that you came in with, you, you, you walked away with those questions addressed. But here's the thing about God and questions. I come to God with questions and he'll give me one answer. And he's like, you know, before you go, let me give you a couple of new questions. So when I leave, I leave with more questions than I came with, even though the answer has touched my heart, which means the longer I go in this, the less I know. If you'd have gotten to know me like 10, 15 years ago, you would have met a guy who just pretty much knew everything about everything with this stuff. But now I know so much less than I used to. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You've been walking with God long enough to realize that this thing of the goodness and the grace of God is way bigger than you thought? Uh-huh. That he's so much better than you think? 
and that you'll never imagine him better than he is? Yeah, so... All right, let me mention just a couple of things. Oh, those of you who feel like you're called to preach the gospel, a couple of people asked me about this. It's a flyer that's in the back. And uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, under the prompting of somebody, uh, and actually an, an ex-Amish kid who got absolutely blasted in the glory in a barn up in Ohio. Um, yeah, it was crazy. We're in the middle of this barn, and, and they look down, and there's a diamond on the floor of this barn with all these Amish people in it. In the middle of preaching, this guy walks up to him and goes, Hey, I think somebody dropped a diamond. And I went, look around. There's no jewelry in this barn. Like, no, no, nobody's wearing jewelry. He says, uh, what should I do with it? I said, well, did your wife have a wedding ring? Oh, no, no, we don't. Well, get her a wedding ring. Put that in it. So anyway, this young man was just completely undone in the glory. And then he came to me about a year and a half ago. And he says, you need to do an online preaching course. So what should we call it? He goes, Call it the Quantum Preaching Masterclass. And I laughed, and then I stopped laughing and thought, that sounds kind of cool. So I'd already created a 30-lesson course for interns in our church who wanted to preach the gospel, and so I just put it on video, and that's what this course is. And there's all, all kinds of cool stuff that's, uh, that's a part of this thing. <laughs> I've even, my, my wife has even had this radical transformation through this class. I got to tell you what I did. When, you want to tell them what I did? You, will you tell them what I did? I just, this is, okay, look. Those of you who are married or thinking about getting married in the room, I don't care. You may be married. Like, don't do this ever, ever. <laughs> so I'm somebody who was absolutely terrified to get up like this in front of people. My heart would be pounding and I would think I was literally going to drop dead. And I told him years ago when he became a senior pastor, I said, don't ever call me up on the platform. I'm just going to be behind the scenes. Uh, I don't want to get up and talk. And, but little by little over the last few years, he'll be like, hey, Tracy, come here and, and tell something. And so he's kind of pulling me out of my comfort zone. Two years ago, he spoke at a church up in New Jersey. And one of the ladies there said, hey, does your wife do public speaking? And he goes, oh, she's a great speaker. <laughs> and uh, she said, do you think she'll do a women's ministry event for us? And he said, sure, I'm sure. You know, she'll do it. Absolutely, she'd love to. And sure, she'd love to be the speaker at a conference. Yeah. And like normal, he kind of forgot about it because he had a lot going on. And so, so he I forgot, didn't tell me. I forget to tell her, how, what, how many weeks before the event? Three weeks before the event, yeah. the lady calls me. Oh, your husband said you're going to preach for us, or you're going to speak at this event, and she so gave bad. me the dates, and I'm looking like, what is going on? And uh, so I'm thinking, okay, okay, maybe it's, it's one session, God will get me through it, and she goes, so here's what we're doing, and she lines out, Friday night, you're going to speak, and we would like you to touch on this topic. Saturday, we have three sessions we want you to do, and she went on and on, and I'm pretending, I'm like, okay, great, great, that's great. <laughs> And I'm taking notes and I hung up the phone and I dropped to my knees and started sobbing. And I was like, oh my God, what's I happening? I knew I was in trouble. I knew I was in so much trouble. <laughs> and I'm thinking I'm going to get up there and they're going to go, she's an imposter. Like she can't speak. And so, but you know what? God showed up in a big way. And yeah. And so <laughs> Bill helped me. He said, listen, he's like, there's two things you need to remember. This is lesson five. Lesson number five, but the two things. Do you love your message? I was like, yes, I love what God's done. He said, so love your message, love the audience. This is not about you. You're here to help people, not to impress people. And so when I walked away with that, it was amazing to see what God did in that women's ministry event. And I survived and they invited me back. And, oh, and I was shocked. So good. <laughs> so I highly recommend quantum preaching, and it's good for anybody, even if you don't want to be a preacher. If you're, if you have to talk to people at all, like in life, you kind of have to talk to people. This is great. 
So, yeah. So ask, when you go, if you go back to the table and pick one of these up, ask Tracy for the discount code because she'll give it to you. Hang on one second. Don't go anywhere. Um, she'll give you the discount code and it'll get you like 50% off the class. There's a USB thumb drive called Walking in the Presence and the Power of the Holy Spirit. It's on spiritual warfare. 12 hours on spiritual warfare. But I don't like the term warfare, so we use the term spiritual joyfare. Right. You have way more fun. You get way more done. And here's a three-word summary of 12 hours. Ready? Demons hate joy. It's true. Demons hate joy, and so do religious people. Take that. Yay. Thank you. Um... So I want to touch on this book on grace tonight just a little bit, and then we're going to get into uh, an area of the scriptures that I don't often preach from, but this will be a lot of fun. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, go to Zechariah chapter 8. <clears throat> About a decade ago, God dropped the word on grace into my heart that I thought was too good to be true, and it came from John chapter 20. A verse in John chapter 20 that I had not paid a whole lot of attention to because it sounded just too strange. It's when Jesus is risen from the dead, he appears to the disciples, and he does something he only ever does twice in the Bible, and that is he breathes on people. Genesis, he breathes on man when he creates him, makes man in his image and likeness. John chapter 20 He breathes on the disciples after he raises from the dead, appears in the middle of a locked room, says, peace to you. As the Father sent me, I send you. Receive the Holy Spirit, he says. And then he says this very strange verse in John 20, 23. Whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. And whoever sins you retain, they are retained. Now, if you've ever looked at the Bible and seen that verse and gone, what? You're not alone. And I felt like God was saying, stop and just camp out there a while because I want to show you some stuff. And I realized really quick, I didn't believe that verse. I kept saying, I'm not the source of grace, God. I don't have tangible grace to give away to anybody. I can forgive somebody that's wrong to me, but I don't have that supernatural measure of grace. And God began to speak to my heart and said, look, everything I did in Christ a man also did. Walk on water, Peter, done, check. Not good at it, but he did it. (laughs) Blind eyes open, ears open, lame walking, dead raising, everything Jesus did, a person did. What about releasing grace? It's the very last impartation he actually gives the disciples, and it's after the resurrection. Now he turns to them and says, you guys have been stewarding my power and my authority. Now you get to steward my grace. Essentially, what he's saying here is if this world doesn't know it's loved, it's forgiven, and it's innocent because of the blood that I've shed, because of what I've done on the cross, and because of the power of the resurrection, it certainly isn't my fault, because now I'm giving you the opportunity to be a spokesman spokesperson, an ambassador of grace to let this world know just exactly how saved it is. And I realized I did not believe this verse. And again, the big roadblock was, I'm not the source of grace. And finally, I felt the Lord say, you're right. You're not. You're never the source of grace. I am. Do I live in you? Oh, now we have a problem. I felt him say, every time you release grace, you're agreeing with me. Yeah, but what about, what about if they don't? What, what about if they don't? What if? He says, you can be as radical or restrained with it as you want. How good do you believe I am? How forgiven do you believe this world can be? How much do you believe that my blood accomplished on the cross? And suddenly I started to realize that as grace changed me, it was changing the way I saw everything around me. If, if, When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at will begin to change. And so this is 182 pages of let's just pretend that this is actually true. What would be the ramifications if the church actually believed that the grace we give away actually matters? 
And I'm talking about giving away grace in such a way that it just removes the chains of sin that have held people down for so long. And in the last 10 years, I've seen so much fruit come from this. It's just been crazy. So much fun. So much fun. We were doing a revival in Belfast, Ireland here a while back and for a few thousand people in attendance and, and uh, in, the middle of it, in the middle of it all, I just had people start, just started prophesying over people and telling them, welcome home, welcome home, welcome home. Just speaking the grace of God over people and I watched this person after person just begin to just crumble. There's a guy sitting all the way in the back and finally I said, look, so I, I feel like I'm missing somebody. Somebody's been waiting for me to look at him all night and I'm sitting there looking up in, this, up in the balcony, down the floor and everything. Finally, this guy waves in the back and I look at him and I just begin to speak the grace of God over this guy's life and I feel the Holy Spirit say, run down and hug this guy. So I run down and I hug this guy. Turns out this guy, his family had been praying for him for 27 years. The church, been around for 60 years, has been praying for this guy for 27 years. And this guy barely would come to church. Shows up reluctantly, drugging, kicking, and screaming. Sitting in the back, wants to get out as soon as possible. One guy he doesn't even care about listening to looks at him and just speaks a word of grace over his life. And he said, I felt my heart just melt like ice under heat. And suddenly, he just gives his life to Christ right there. I was talking, that was two summers ago, and I was talking to the pastor of that church just the other day online, and he goes, you cannot believe this guy. He's like a fire-breathing revivalist. It's, unbe- it's unbelievable. What happened? Somebody with eyes of grace has to look at you and tell you you're loved without saying a word. You give grace away in your countenance. You give grace away on your face. It's grace that shines out from you. Grace becomes the empowering force that releases the kingdom of God and everything about the kingdom into this world. Grace is not a defensive excuse to live in sin. It's an offensive empowerment to walk in righteousness. Oh, I'm telling you something. Some of you have been going through some deconstruction. I'm not even preaching yet. Let me just hit this real quick because I feel it in the room. I've felt it for two days. I've been going, God, how do I hit this? Some of you have been going through deconstruction. You heard this. It's a hot, happening, hipster term. In other words, yeah, I'm throwing out old belief systems. It's fine. I give you two years. You got two years to deconstruct. Deconstruction doesn't make you a genius. If I let a donkey loose in your house, your house is going to get deconstructed, right? And I understand some of the belief systems that you've held on to have held you back for a long time, like an angry God, a vindictive God, a father that's just waiting to crush you, have got to go. I get that. Let them go. But when deconstruction is mixed with, mixed with a rebellious heart and a bitterness towards God, it'll give you spiritual scoliosis. It'll actually stunt your growth and you'll justify it, become a victim and take on an orphan mentality and blame the church. So I give you a couple of years. Walk around that mountain, get into the hog pen because the hog pen of the prodigal will teach you more than the father's house ever would if that's what you need to learn. No problem with that. I'm not blessing it. I'm just saying the father in the story let his son take his journey without condemnation because the father knew that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. For some reason, some people just got to learn stuff the hard way. I don't know why. They just insist. It's the college course you sign up for. That's the elective that nobody's forcing you into, but you went ahead and signed up for it anyway. And the father never stops being a father. He keeps watching from the porch. But the thing about this deconstruction thing is eventually you got to build something. Deconstruction doesn't inspire me. I want to know what you're building. So you let old belief systems die and you unlearned an old revelation. What are you learning? What is God building in you? And may have been, maybe you're so disappointed at the things that you deconstructed. In other words, you held on to these for so long and now they've been pried out of your hands and so you just don't want, you don't want to grab onto anything anymore. Well, listen, hey, if the foundation of your faith is a book, it can be argued out of your hands 
by somebody who knows the book better than you. You guys know me. If you know me the past couple of days, you know I live, breathe, eat, sleep, and love this word, right? If the foundation of your faith is a particular doctrine, it can be debated out of your hands by somebody with a better doctrine. If the foundation of your faith is a leader, it'll be offended out of your hands the first time that leader does something stupid. But when the foundation of your faith is in Christ alone, you live with an open hand because you realize you're at rest in his grip. That's where we live. And the thing about Jesus is he, he has a way of creating and building, and you're made in his image and likeness. And when you get done with all your deconstruction, I just want to know what you're building. That's discipleship. We're making disciples these days. I'm super happy about that. My daughter just had an interesting experience happen when she was 12 years old. When she was 12 years old, she went through a series of losses. Being in the pastor's house, we attended a lot of funerals, and she started experiencing a series of losses, losses of relationships, loss of, matter of fact, a young friend of hers was killed in a car accident tragically. Um, a couple of little girls that she, she took care of uh, lost that relationship. People moved away. She started like, just experiencing all these losses, and, and she was having a, a response to this, and we didn't realize it. Tracy and I never realized it at the time. She went up to her room one night, and when she was 12, she's 23 years old now, she went up to her room one night, and she, she's like, God, I can't experience loss anymore. She was just tired of the hurt that she was feeling. And as a child, she prayed a very interesting prayer. She said, God, make it to where I never have kids. I didn't know this until just like a month ago. And shortly after that, we actually saw that she had a major curve in her spine, like an S curve. It was crazy. It was like, what in the world happened here? And we took her to the doctors, and... And they did all kinds of crazy treatments, and she didn't quite need surgery, but they said, this will never change. She'll carry this the rest of her life. She's got scoliosis. And we're like, wow, oh my goodness. You know, we, we just didn't know. Something just happens to people, right? And uh, about a month ago, Tracy and Sarah are sitting there just visiting, talking. And Sarah starts talking about this time in her life when she was experiencing loss and the devastating effect it had on her heart and her mind. And as she's talking about this, she says, Mom, you rub my back. It's like really hurting. And then she tells Tracy, she says, Mom, I went up into my room. And she goes, and I prayed this prayer. And as she starts talking, she never talked this out with anybody before. Her back is hurting worse and worse and worse. And she goes, I prayed this prayer and asked God, don't ever let me have kids and all of a sudden she goes, oh no, I get it. She realized she had come into partnership at the age of 12, came into partnership with a lie that was rooted in alignment with fear. And she just sat there and sobbed. And Tracy just, we'd had, we've had everybody pray for Sarah. Everybody from Heidi Baker to Todd White to Bill Johnson. Everybody's prayed for Sarah. And we're just waiting for that spine to straighten up. We're like, Nothing. We realized, though, what God was taking her through was a process of awakening to to let go of a lie that she had believed at a very young age. She says, she repents of the whole thing. She's like, "I, I, I, I I give that up. I give that up. I let go of that. And her back's like crazy hurting. And all of a sudden, her spine just goes... Eleven years of scoliosis goes away because she gives up a lie that fear handed her on a silver platter. And some of you have believed some lies about yourself and about others and about God. And I think this weekend God's broken off some lies off of you. And tonight he's going to break off some more. Isn't that cool? All right. Zechariah chapter... Uh, I'm excited. I've been preaching so much this weekend. I thought tonight, "Ah, maybe I'll get up and talk about David. Wait, didn't I talk about that last night? Yeah. Okay. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 14. Uh, Israel, by the way, has come out of Babylonian captivity. And when they came out of Babylonian captivity, you understand that in Babylon, they spent 70 years essentially paying for everything that they had done previous, which is pretty crazy when you... When you think about it, and God is about to say something that is going to be really uncomfortable for many of you, right? 
It's going to be really, really empowering to your heart, but I'm just kind of gearing you up here because what he's about to say may put you at a state of discomfort until you understand the reason behind it. It's what he says in Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I purposed to do harm to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I have not relented, so I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. Everybody say, do not fear. Okay, uh, let's try it like the slogan used to say. No fear. Ready? No fear. One more time, a little louder. One more time, even louder than that. There you go. God comes to Israel and he says this. Guys, I used to beat up on your parents a bunch. Man, I punished these guys. I punished their forefathers a ton. And I would not relent. Well, we're changing things now. One translation says, from now on, or from this day forward, he says, I'm purposing to do good to you and will not relent. So don't fear. Now, this is very uncomfortable for for people with the the concept that God doesn't, doesn't change anything. The idea that God doesn't change comes from this concept. People say, well, God says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's actually not what the Bible says. It's in Hebrews, and it says Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is who God has always been. And because we could not see Jesus in God, in the old covenant, because we chose in Exodus 19, the children of Israel chose not to have a relationship with God. They chose instead to have a a human mediator. They didn't want to hear the voice of God again. In Exodus 19, when the children of Israel are at the base of the mountain, Mount Sinai, and they say to Moses, we don't want God to talk to us again. You go tell us what he says, but we don't want to hear his voice ever again, okay? For the next 1,300 years, God goes silent. He speaks to individuals like Isaiah, Zechariah, Nehemiah, but to a corporate body of people, he doesn't talk again until the moment that Jesus Christ goes into the waters of baptism under the hands of John and comes up out of the water and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. That's the voice I think of. This is my beloved son. James Earl Jones, you know what I'm saying? That's when God speaks again. What's happening? We're having a shift in covenants. Jesus is ushering in a new covenant. But Jesus is who God has always been. His character, his nature hasn't changed. But his dealings with us have. So God, no, he doesn't change. But we do. And because we change, his dealings with man change, especially as it, as it matters down through the covenants. As the covenants cycle through, because we just keep breaking these things over and over again, God's dealings with us change. Let me illustrate it like this. If, if, uh, if you have a child, they come to you, and let's say Joel, one of his daughters, comes to him, and she talks to him, and he's, you know, she's like two years old. He will probably put on his daddy voice for a two-year-old. I see like, perfectly sane grown adults put on a weird voice to talk to their two-year-old, right? Oh, you want to go get french fries at McDonald's? Ah! I don't think Joel sounds like that, but you know what I'm saying, right? How many of you know if she's 20 years old and standing next to him and he looks at him and goes, oh, would you like to go get french fries today at McDonald's? Weird. Fine for a two-year-old, not fine for a 20-year-old. What's changing? Him? No. She's changing. And as your children change, you may not change. You may be the same yesterday, today, and forever. But your dealings with them do change. So God will change his dealings with you as you grow and develop. Now, your growth and development really is, is, is more of an act of a renewed mind, a surrendered and renewed mind. And by that I mean this, that Colossians 2, 9 and 10 says this, in Christ, the fullness of the Godhead, that's Father, Spirit, and Son, in Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in a body. And in him, you have been, that's past tense, you have been made complete. 
So from heaven's vantage point, because of what Christ has done, you're already as complete as you're going to get, as saved as you're going to get, as loved as you're going to get. You're already there. So what is the process that it feels like we're going through? Well, it's a process of you and I simply awakening to an awareness of what has already been done. And for many of us, that feels like growth and growing pains. But you don't come to a place of recognizing your completeness through striving into it, but surrendering to the reality of it. And that process of surrender feels like death sometimes. So who's changing? God? Nope. You. This is the change and transformation that we're going through. We're undergoing through a a radical transformation. When when we're in the presence of the Lord and and we say, okay, I just got got saved yesterday. God, what do we do right now? Get up and brush your teeth. That's a great idea. What do you do with little kids? You have to tell them, brush your teeth. Put pants on. (sighs) Use the spoon when you eat your cereal. (sighs) You have to state the obvious for children, don't you? Why? Because they're learning how to function in this world. Early on in your Christian life, you're learning how to function in the kingdom. And so it's almost like God is just, he's right there with you in no distance, no separation. Remember? It's kind of a mantra of mine, right? No distance, no separation. He's within you. He's right there. And he's guiding you. He's leading you. He's, but as you grow more mature, In this physical realm, what happens? As you grow more mature, your parents give you more responsibility. In other words, your options increase. When you're very small, you have very few options. And you don't really care. Do I want to play with this toy or that toy? And mom just says, whatever you want within the context of the room that I'm going to put you in right here, this crib, this space that you can't leave. You have all the options in that world. But as you grow in responsibility, suddenly your borders increase and your options increase. We call that freedom. And that's the way the parents teach their kids how to manage their freedom. By little by little, just giving them a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. Why? Because they know as immature children that we can't handle freedom. And yet, we have inheritance in our parents. We have inheritance that we, we it's, it's ours, but we're not going to be given access to it until we reach a certain point of maturity, yet it's already ours. And then we get to this point of spiritual maturity. Let's come back to this thing as a spirit. And some of you, you say, you've been walking with God for a long time, and you say, I don't know, I just don't hear his voice like I used to. What are you asking him? Still asking him whether you should brush your teeth or not? I don't hear God's voice like I used to. The other day I was asking God, you know, what am I supposed to do? And, and suddenly it's like I've got like 20 things in front of me that I could do. I'm going, God, which one should I choose? And I'm getting nothing. Some of you have been walking with the Lord long enough to where you ask questions like that and you're getting nothing. Can I tell you what's going on? Welcome to maturity. Dad is delighting in watching you make a choice that he can bless. There's times in your life where God will suddenly put multiple options in front of you and you're going, God, which one should I choose? And like any good dad, he's like, I don't care. They're all good. I I I want the perfect will. We have this weird idea that God's perfect will is like finding a needle in a haystack and it's not. In, In Genesis, when God created the garden, he created a gazillion trees that Adam can eat from and one that he couldn't. And he told him which one it was. The perfect will of God for Adam's diet that day was any tree that he wanted. He had to work really hard to go for the one bad choice. He's a good dad. He doesn't stack the odds against us, give us one perfect will in a sea of a gazillion bad choices. He's a really good dad. He delights in giving you freedom to choose. Some of you have been walking with God for a long time. Who should I marry? you got 20 people in front of you. And God goes, I don't know. Which one do you like? (laughs) Well, I want your perfect will. You make a choice. That'll be perfect. That's too much freedom, Bill. 
when Tracy and I deal with people who've gotten married and we're like, you know, they're, you know, I, I thought they were the perfect will of God for my life, but then I married them and it's like, whoa, they're not the person I thought they were. Clearly, I chose plan B. And the problem is, is if you think there's one perfect will and you got to find it like a needle in a haystack and you make the choice that you think is it and then suddenly you realize, oh no, there might have been something better. You can use that perfect will, that one needle in the haystack perfect will thing to actually justify shutting down the relationship, walking away from the marriage and calling it God. No condemnation if you've been divorced. No condemnation at all. Because I believe that God has the ability to redeem every choice we've ever made. And some of you, listen, some of you guys had needed to get out of that marriage because not only was it not the perfect will of God, God was there the whole time going, no, no, not good. But, oh, they're going to do it anyway. Okay, tree of the knowledge, good and evil. If he can redeem us eating from the tree of the knowledge, good and evil, he can redeem you making a bad choice in a marriage, all right? So if you're making divorced, God has love for you in the future. He has hope for you in the future. He has family for you in the future. His promises are present future, right? He's big on that, all right? He has a way of redeeming every moment of pain and loss and stuff you had in the past. But what I'm talking about is people who think, oh, I got the perfect will of God. I have made the one choice and suddenly they realize maybe I could have made a better one. Can I tell you something about marriage? I was talking to some people last night about this and so I'm going to share this with you. This will be free. When you get married, there are literally four people that you marry. You marry, first off, the person you think they are. You marry the person they think they are. Number three, you marry the person they actually are right now, at this point in their life. And the fourth is you marry the person that they are becoming. Now, problems arise when you fall in love with one or maybe two out of the four. And when the others show up, because they will, you can suddenly go, oh my goodness, I was fooled, duped, sold a bill of goods. I didn't sign up for this. I got married under false pretenses. And you pick up the phone and call the first lawyer commercial that you see. Thinking, I got to get out of this thing, right? But here's the thing. Let me just go, go through each one of the four. This is for somebody in the room tonight. <clears throat> the first one, the person you think they are, the person you think they are has got to die. Just does. Because they don't exist. They're the person you made up in your mind. Right? They're the person you describe to your friends when they're not around. They can't disappoint you. They always look perfect. They're always doing everything exactly the way that you would want it to be done. In your mind, you're writing the script that they're saying and the actions that they're doing. They are amazing until you show up and they're right there with you. And then they're like, wait, they're not following my script. Why are you wearing that? What's going on? It's like everything's gone wrong because the person you think they are does not exist. The second is the person they think they are. And the person they think they are is never as good as the person you think they are. Especially women. Women, you always put yourselves down in front of your husbands. I'm fat. My hair doesn't look good. What is this horrible? Look at that. Isn't this bad? Do I just, ah, ah, do these boots make my calves look big? You know why you do that? To test us. You want to make sure we don't think what you think. We want to make sure we're not going to agree with what you're saying. We have, and man, you have one job, and that is to disagree with everything she's saying right now. Oh my, you, oh no, that's not true. You look wonderful. That's great. Pink and purple go great together. That's a fantastic color combination. I love your mother. (laughs) 
Ladies, two words. Stop it. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. When you say things that require our disagreement, you're putting the foundation of the relationship on a really difficult place because no relationship is sustainable long-term when disagreement is the the source of of the relationship. You cannot build a long-term relationship on disagreement. Eventually, you're gonna have to just stop speaking lies over yourself. And guys, you gotta do it too. Eventually, you got to stop speaking lies over yourself and believe the truth in what that husband's been telling you. If, he, if he's a good guy and he's been telling you, you're beautiful, you're amazing, you're awesome, believe him. Amen. Well, that's just you. You're supposed to think that. Yes, he's supposed to think that, but he's also speaking and declaring truth. Because one of the things that we have a job in, guys, is getting the heart of the father over his daughter. And you know how, how dads how dads look at... I remember the first time our daughter Sarah, she puts on makeup, and she didn't know how to put it on quite right. And she comes out, and she's like, you know, hair all weird, and makeup's like all off and everything. She's like, Daddy, look at me. And I was like, you are beautiful. Yes, she was. Guys, your job is to connect to the heart of the father and speak words of spirit and life over the king's daughter. You're married to the king's daughter. Come on. The person you think they are, not real. The person they think they are, not real. Neither one of those are real. Those eventually go away. Let me tell you when they go away. Amateur married couples, you'll figure this one out soon enough. They go away the day that you wake up, you look over and go, who are you? I have no idea where I am right now. How did I get here? <laughs> where did these kids come from? I just... That day. That's the day that you meet the person they are right now. now. Tracy has a beautiful saying I love, and it goes like this. Every person's life is a book. And don't judge the story by the chapter you walked in on. Oh. <laughs> she actually told that to me one day, and she didn't use that kind of a tone. It sounded more like this. Bill, every person's life is a book, and don't judge the story by the chapter you walked in on. Yes, ma'am. Yes. It's true. Sometimes the word of the Lord comes to us forcefully. But you know, you can you can you can use that kind of you can use that kind of tone when, when love's behind it. God can speak to you. He can speak to you in a stern way when love's behind it, and you know that there's no anger in it. Why? Because sometimes he has to cut through the noise to get through the thick head, just like she has to do to get through mine sometimes. So yeah, you you don't judge the story by the chapter you walked in on, but you recognize that your connection, covenant, and communion with that person becomes that, that avenue by which you can actually be a part of their story and help them to write a glorious conclusion. You're not there to control the story. You're there to contribute to the story. You're there to actually prophetically speak into the story and declare life over and be there to walk through the glorious conclusion of each other's story. And then you get to the last person. And this is actually the only person in the four that really matters. And that's the person that they are becoming. And that's the person that God has known from before the foundation of the world. He told Jeremiah, I knew you before I formed you. So who did God know? One of the best ways you can learn to love your spouse again, by the way, I don't know why I'm even talking about all this tonight, but it's for somebody in here. Your questions are doing this. Um, G.K. Chesterton said, the greatest way to learn to love a thing is to realize it might be lost. And there's something about Learning the art of falling in love with the same person more than once. That's a big deal. 
It's not that you're renewing the covenant. It's that you just always keep the new covenant new. You understand the thing about the new covenant? The new covenant is the bride and the bridegroom getting together. The new covenant is, is, is on the cross. It's the eternal I do of heaven over humanity in the grand wedding ceremony of the ages. And our, our reciprocation of the covenant is just us saying I do back. And then you begin to step in the fruit of that covenant, that life-giving, life-bearing, fruit-producing covenant union with God, that reconciled union that 2 Corinthians 5 talks about, that in, in Christ, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's the thing about love that's such a big deal. It's how you fall in love with somebody. It's through radical, reckless grace. And that means I'm not going to let your trespasses be put into your account. I'm actually wiping the slate clean. And you and I are actually going back to square one. tough to do. Fortunately, he's already done it, so you don't have to. And so you rest on what he has done and you begin to let him impart his love to you and begin to ask him, God, what do you think about my wife? God, what do you think about my husband? God, what do you think about this person? And you begin to catch and capture the heart and the mind of God for these people. And next thing you know, you're loving them like he does all over again. He's recognizing your covenant with God that recognizes that reconciled union within your own heart. And then you look at somebody else who is also in covenant with God and you begin to realize, oh my goodness, I'm not just in covenant with God. I'm in covenant with you. Now, a marriage covenant is supposed to put the heart of God on display. But more than that, even, even more than that, God has made us one spirit. Now, what does it mean to be one spirit? One spirit essentially means like this. It's like... Um, uh, um, Oh, who's the guy that leads worship here? What's your name again? Nathan. Nathan, you're amazing. My goodness. And amazing people draw amazing teams. So, you know, I understand. No person's just an island of themselves. You got an incredible team behind you. Evidenced by the fact that he can just put the mic down, drop down on his knees, and worship just keeps high. It's just awesome. So, especially this drummer back here tonight. He was, he was like, I don't know if you noticed, but there was a point during the song. I mean, you can hardly see him through the cage back there. I'm like, I'm advocating for a world of cage-free drummers, by the way. All right? So, <clears throat> so, um, but I don't know if you saw, he's like on his feet and he's like fist pumping into the air and there's no drums up there. It's just, it's cool. Drummers that worship. I love your team, Nathan, because, because you're bucking against the trend that has like been the virus in worship ministry for the past decade or so. And that is worship leaders that look bored loving God. I love that you do not look bored loving God. All right? Right? So that's super cool with me. So, so here's the thing though. I'm in covenant relationship and union with God. The fullness of the Godhead that dwelt in Christ dwells in me. I've been made complete. So here, God present, resident within me. All of God is now taken up all of me. I don't fully grasp or understand that. I just recognize he has chosen to live in me. That's amazing. No distance, no separation. Now, he's also in covenant union with Nathan. Fully present, resident within you, empowering you by his spirit. But the problem is, is in this physical world, I look over at Nathan, he's sitting way over there and I'm standing way over here. There appears to be a gap of distance and separation. Yet in the spirit, Christ is never divided. Right? So, so what do I do with this gap? I realize that there are two realms I'm talking about. One is the physical realm that is called temporal, and the other is the eternal realm, which is, or the spiritual realm, which is called eternal. The eternal realm is more valuable than the temporal realm. It's more real than the temporal realm. So what's happening here is in this temporal realm, it looks like you're sitting there and I'm standing here, but in the spirit, we're actually one, and this distance is purely a physical illusion. 
Okay, you say, wow, that sounds a little new agey, Bill. I want you to watch what happens here. This is great because this is just straight Bible. We're one in the spirit, right? If I think that distance and separation is the greater reality, then Nathan gets up here and he leads worship and he plays and sings at the same time and he sounds amazing and he's doing what he's doing. And I sit down there and I go, huh, wish I could do that. And I feel like jealous, maybe competitive. There's jealousy and there's competition because apparently he has a gift that I I wish I had. It's, It's too common. It's unfortunate, but it's just common. Jealousy and competition start to cause us to compete with one another, put each other down, that kind of thing. And yet when Nathan standing up here and I'm sitting there and I realize the Holy Spirit that's in him is the same Holy Spirit that's within me. And the way he shines out of me is very different than the way he shines out of him, no less valuable. But when I realize it's the exact same spirit and neither one of us could do anything without the spirit of God empowering us to do it. These aren't natural gifts or talents that just come without the spirit of God. These are things that have been stewarded by the spirit of God in us, communing with the Lord to teach us actually how to shine effectively and put the anointing on display. And when I realize that the same spirit that's in him, that's empowering him to do this, is the same spirit that lives in me, I stand down there and I watch Nathan and this is what I think. My goodness, I did not know I was that awesome. Look at that. That's amazing. Watch, look at that. That's, that's me right there. <laughs> Not only that, but I don't have to work up a sweat like he's doing. I just, I can enjoy. I can just, this is great. This is amazing. I'm just, not weird. It's not spooky. What happens is, is I begin to realize, wait a minute, that same spirit that's on him is on me. And there's no jealousy and there's no competition anymore. Now, when he puts the anointing of God on display, suddenly I start to see the goodness of God in a way that I've never seen it before. which means I need you to be great. I need you to be anointed. I need you to be empowered. And I need you to shine and stop putting your light down and stop just saying what, and call it humility, right? In other words, stop stomping on the anointing in your own life, calling it humility. I need you to shine bright because without you putting all of the Holy Spirit on display in you, there's an aspect of the nature of God that remains hidden from me. Because what he's placed in you can only be put on display by you. So you know how I I draw a a greater intimacy of relationship with God? Is I get to know you. And now I'm looking beyond the costume. And I want to see see the presence of the Lord upon you. I want to see the oil on your life. I want to see the fire that burns in you. Because the more I get to know that in you, then the more I fall in love with my father all over again. This is, I believe, this is the reckless grace concept of the fact that when we actually begin to remove the distance and separation idea from each other, then we actually cause each other to shine. There's a verse in the Bible that's often misused and misquoted and goes like this. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens the countenance of another. Have you heard that? It's oftentimes used to justify conflict in church. So it's like you, you picture these two people going, all right, that's it. We're going to get together. And I'm going to get my sword out. We're going to ching, ching, ching. And we walk away scarred, beaten, bloody. But hey, this is what we're doing. We're sharpening iron, making each other tougher. Stop it. That's not what it means. As iron sharpens iron, it says one person sharpens the countenance of another. It means when I get around other covenant believers, what ends up happening is our interaction makes us both shine. Sharpens. The countenance, my face glows brighter when I see Jesus in you. That's the thing. Listen, some of you in here going, whoa, I wish I went to a church that believed that. (laughs) Don't we all? We wonder why the world isn't just beating the doors down, coming in our churches to want to like glow with the love of God. You know what ends up happening is people come into our church, and I'll finish with this. I was going to talk more about that, but I, I'm, I'm long past that. <clears throat> I'll try to circle it back around here. 
People come into our churches and they walk in the back. And this is what I used to see. They'd come in and their face would be like, you know, and like just, oh. And their lower lip is just like draped on the floor. And they're, oh, just, oh, they're so depressed. And, and I look at them and go, oh. So Usher would wave at me and go, hey, hey, they, they, they need prayer. They just want to receive Jesus. Oh, really? What, 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 did you, what would you like me to Oh, man, they start confessing sin left and right. And it's like, okay, what, what can we pray about? I just, I need Jesus in my life. Yes, you do. You need Jesus. We're going to pray. We're going to say the sinner's prayer. We're going to get you saved right now. And so they confess their sins and they pray and they repent before God. And an amazing thing happens. You see this look come over their face. And they're like, whoa, this is great. And you know something fun happens. They typically start coming to church and they sit on the front row and whether they can sing or not, they sing. And whether they can dance or not, they dance. And they always just like the most excited person in the room. And they always ask this question. What do I do? What can I do? Give me something to do. Now, back in the old days, I would say, okay, we'll get you right into a class. We'll get you to work. We'll put you to, and we, we get them like plugged in as quickly as possible because I didn't want them to run away. And uh, because that's what we do as pastors is we work really hard to create paying and returning customers. <laughs> I'm a pastor, so I can say that, right? So we read books on this stuff. We try to like, oh, you know, what can, what can we do to get people plugged in, Right. Yeah, assimil- we call it assimilated, which is really a terrible term when you stop and think about it, which means we're going to make sure that you end up looking just like us, all right? So, so, so after about three months of working in the church, serving in some area, funny thing happens. I start to notice the fire starts to go down a little bit, and suddenly they stop coming. And I go following after them, and, and they're nowhere to be found. And then one day I run into them, and I ask what happened. And I start to hear story after story after story. And you know what? You know what? It actually it went wrong the minute they walked in the door. Because we live in a world where when people feel condemnation, guilt, and shame, punishment and judgment actually feels good. It's why people turn themselves into the police. When they've done something horrible and they can't live with themselves anymore and they've had too many sleepless nights and like, I can't deal with this and they go turn themselves into the police. But if you haven't done anything, anything criminal and you can't turn yourself into the police, but you have these sleepless nights and guilt and shame and condemnation, and you think to yourself, I need to be punished. I need judgment. I need punishment. Where do you go in the United States of America? To church. And that's why people walk in looking depressed. It's the same look that somebody has when they're turning themselves in to the police. I thought it was a conviction to the Holy Spirit, but it's a cultural response to the fact that we have put, we've done a slam bang job of putting judgment on display when God is supposed to be famous for love. So now people come in, they look like that. And the first thing I do is I walk up, I give him a big old hug. Welcome home. Well, you haven't even heard what I've done yet. Stop, stop, stop. You're so loved by the father. You're so accepted. You are just, oh, you're his child. You're his son. He was like, what? What are you Okay, but can I just, can we meet? And I can tell you, you know, I know you've probably done a lot of things you're sorry for. He knows every single one of them and his grace can clean you up faster than you can mess yourself up. Why don't you pray with me? Let's just receive that grace by faith. You're just so loved. Freaks them out. So then, then they ask this question. What do I do? Now this is what I say. Nothing. Not a thing. I don't want you stacking a chair. I don't want you holding a door. I don't want you saying hi to anybody, greeting anybody. I don't want you, I don't want you setting muffins out on Sunday morning until, and I don't care if it takes two weeks, two months, two years, 20 years, until you are 100% absolutely without a doubt convinced that you are loved by the Father. You get in here and you soak in the oil of the Father's embrace until you realize that his righteousness is more powerful than your sin. You recognize that his holiness is an impartation of his identity upon you. 
when you find yourself in a place of complete, intoxicated, embrace in the love of the Father, and you can't hear anything but the Father saying, I've never been disappointed in you a day in my life, and I've been around a long time. Then maybe you can set muffins out. Those are the people. Listen, the, and you start watching, you realize that they've just suddenly entered into an environment that's a punishment-free zone. A judgment-free zone. You say, Bill, I don't understand. That sounds like greasy grace. <clears throat> and an old man told me one time, he says, Bill, do you preach your grace greasy? <laughs> and I thought, I don't, I don't know the right answer to this question. <laughs> and before I could answer, he says to me, because if you're not preaching it greasy, you're not preaching it right. There's nothing dry about grace. It's dripping with the oil of heaven. <laughs> People walk up to me all the time and they'll wear this boom. Is this that sloppy agape? Is this that greasy grace? Well, yes, it is. And it'll change your life. Just as I purpose, look at this. This is God, Zechariah 8. I'm going to just pull this back around. Just as I purpose, back in the day, I used, to, I used to beat your forefathers up. I used to pour wrath out on them. But you know what? From now on, I'm actually going to do good to you. And this moment right here begins to usher in what happens to be known as the silent years. The silent years really aren't that silent. It's just they were so used to the wrath of God that when God stopped exercising his wrath over these people, they thought he wasn't saying anything at all. But what he was doing is going to spend the next four centuries actually unfolding and opening, them up, open, opening their heart up to this idea of the new covenant. Because Jesus was going to come, and, and in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, it says that Jesus Christ is the exact representation of the nature of God. In other words, he is who God has always been. And when he shows up to us and he's seen for who he truly is, he's absolutely irresistible. He undoes all of our religious ideas and concepts about God in, in favor of, of replacing those concepts with the reality of who God has always been, has been more loving, has been more gracious, has been more of everything that's good than you have ever even begun to imagine. A dear friend of mine says, I had a revelation one day, and that is that Jesus came to make me an atheist. What? And he goes, yes, Jesus has come, and he's made me an atheist against the God of my own making, because who I thought God was is not who he is in the glory and grace of Jesus Christ, in the light of that revelation, who I thought God was is not true. <sighs> mm. Well, I was hoping to get through more scripture than that. Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment? Let's just get along with the Lord. God, I've just had fun with these guys tonight and I've really just enjoyed being with them and I've, I've enjoyed being with your people. I've enjoyed being with your sons and daughters. And Lord, I pray tonight in this simple word, this casserole of scripture and ideas and goodness and thoughts that have been rolling around in this room. Lord, I pray that you'll heal hearts and touch marriages, restore lives, renew minds, Cause us to be more in love with you and more in love with each other than we ever thought possible before. And every concept that we've held of you that doesn't line up with what you revealed to us in Christ, God, let those things go away. So we surrender to some deconstruction, but God, I'm more interested tonight in seeing construction begin. For you who began a good work in our lives will be faithful to complete it. And I declare that every person within the sound of my voice tonight is complete in you. They've been made complete in you. That in you, the fullness of the Godhead dwell in a body and in you, we have already been made complete. So Lord, I pray that you would grant us just a supernatural gift of faith to understand 
understand how complete we already are right now without any striving with just a heart of surrender. Would you pray this prayer with me from your heart? If what I'm saying is something you can agree with, would you pray this prayer with me from your heart? Lord Jesus, right now, I want to see you. So fill all of me with all of you. I break off every lie that I've believed about you and about me and cause me to see others the same way. I want to see you in them. So open my eyes, the eyes of my spirit, in Jesus' name. Put your hand over your heart, would you? I'm just going to take a few moments and worship the Lord tonight. Just more important, I think, that we finish these times by directing all of our attention and all of our affection upon the presence of the Lord. Tonight, I pray that healing has been happening all over this room. If you came in with any pain, chronic condition, measurable condition, tumors, whatever it happens to be, you might want to check it out. Pretty good chance it might be gone. Would you go ahead and stand your feet with me? If you came in tonight and you have any of those things that I just talked about, you have chronic pain, you have a chronic condition, you came in tonight with pain and, and, uh, or, or maybe there's a tumor, there's a lump somewhere, something that you can actually test, see, and see if there's an improvement in. And check it out right now and see if the pain is still there, see if the tumor is still there. And see if God is doing something right now in your body and you know and you're like, whoa, something's happening physically in my body. And I can feel like healing is taking place in my body. Would you just like raise your hand, just wave at me and let me know God's working in you in this room. Wow. Come on. Come on, Jesus. Woo, yes. Let's lift up an offering of praise tonight. Thank you, Lord. 